All right, so that's the giving update for today. Uh, I'm going to give us now uh, our final message for 2019 on a church that unites diverse people. So if you haven't been with us so far and you've been curious about what this series is all about, we've been talking through, walking through the book of Acts. And each step along the way, we've been learning more and more about this vision that Jesus gave the early church. So he told his followers, go share the good news. The good, go share the good news of, of my death and resurrection and the new life that people can have. And go share it in Jerusalem and Judea. Go share it in Samaria. Go share it to the ends of the earth. It was a vision that would unite the world, in a sense, a whole lot of people that they didn't think about before. But he also said this, before you go, wait. You're not going to do this on your own power. This is not something that you will accomplish on your own. Wait for the gift that is the Holy Spirit who will move you and change you and transform the world around you. This is the life that we live through Acts. And as we're following along, we've seen some incredible things as God has invited new people into the family of faith. Some of the most unlikely people in some of the most unexpected places, right? First of all, Hellenistic Jewish widows who happened to be in Jerusalem at the time, who were neglected in the feeding, but God had an eye for them. Uh, Priests who once upon a time persecuted Jesus and his followers were now coming into the church. There were Samaritans, the people who, who lived next door, but were untrusted, were unclean, and who were suspicious, right? But now they were also part of this family of faith. God was inviting all of them to be part of this new faith village, this church. He sent Philip to a desert road, which would seem completely non-logical, but there he met an Ethiopian eunuch, a leader from a, a faraway land, who was curious about this Jesus, and he came to faith and was baptized. That's how much God loved this Ethiopian eunuch. Then there was Saul, chief persecutor of the church, someone who would have been on everyone's like never list, right? But he came to faith as he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And finally, we looked at Cornelius, a Roman centurion. What did he have to do with the faith? And yet God spoke to him and asked Peter to go and, and walk him through all the challenges and changes that would come with coming to the faith. So what we've seen so far is that God has had this amazing invitation to people around the world to come, be a part of his new church. And in Acts chapter 15, what we're going to look at today is a central question that is very significant. It was significant in the life of the early church. It is a very relevant question for us now, is how do we live as one church? How do we live into this unity when God has invited so many different people with different mindsets, with different perspectives, even different languages? So that's Acts chapter 15. Now, the reason why this is the last, just a little aside, the reason why this is the last message for this series for 2019 is we're going to pick this up in 2020, but next week we're going to have a Thanksgiving um, celebration, so we're going to have uh, open mic and some sharing. 
Uh, and then through December, we're going to be doing Advent activities, including a Sunday dedicated to HWR and some other things. So it's going to be great. We're going to have children's uh, uh, performances or, or, you know, offerings. It's going to be really, really good. I'm really excited about all that's coming up next. So we're going to put a pause to our main series and do that. But before we get there, we still have Acts 15 for today. So what are we going to do? Um, uh, this is the big question. How will everyone t- uh, live together as one church? What we're going to do today is we're going to read through Acts chapter 15, most of it anyways. We're going to talk about the unity challenge. Why was it so challenging for the early church? And then we're going to talk about our unity challenge today, namely things around race. And then we're going to talk about how we can live into this unity. And then we'll, we'll have some time for conversation in the room today. That's how we'll finish. But let's jump right into Acts chapter 15. And before I, I read this, let's take a moment to, to ask God to lead us and to guide our time. Lord, in this moment as we jump into your word to follow this narrative again, to look at this vision that was given to us by Jesus I pray that you make our hearts receptive. Help all of us, help me to listen closely to what you have to say. Lead us and guide us forward. As uncomfortable as it might be, we trust that it is your love and your grace that leads us forward. We pray in Jesus' name. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch, and we're teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into a sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, yeah, they came to Christ too, right? (laughs) They stood up and they said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. All right, so this is the presenting question. And something that's really important here, wow, that green is really, it wasn't that green on my screen when I did it at home, but boy, um, and let me just try and explain it to, to, what, uh, to us here. Um, what is circumcision and why was this so important to the early uh, Jewish people? So Jesus was Jewish, and he spoke to Jewish, uh, Jewish context, and the disciples that he called were Jewish, right? And so in doing that, in having this embedded gospel in this community of faith that was largely Jewish, there was a lot of Jewish assumptions about what the faith should look like. And in particular, if you're not familiar with the act of circumcision, it is a mark on the male body made to say this. That person is part of the covenant family of God. 
They follow God. They are part of this whole historical God movement, just like their father, just like their grandfather, just like Abraham and all the folks in between. They were part of this historical moment. And the question came up, well, don't other people have to do the same thing if they are going to follow God? So here is sort of the logic behind their argument. It's Jesus plus circumcision. That's how you are saved. Uh, The Jewish people um, follow God. Jewish people who are males are circumcised. So anyone else who follows God needs circumcision. Now, if you read later on in the New Testament, like books like Galatians, this, this viewpoint uh, was adopted by people called the Judaizers, right? And they were people who said Jesus plus Moses and circumcision and all of that. Only problem here is, okay, this is not what Jesus taught in the Gospels. This is not what Paul and others were saying when they went to all these places and people were coming to faith. This was an addition to the Gospel an innovation, so to speak, theological innovation that was really headed in the wrong direction. So the people uh, that were the leaders in Jerusalem got together for council, and they came up with two decisions. We're going to walk through those decisions. The first decision was this. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and belief. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor ancestors have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Okay, so this, there's going to be a lot of text. This is part of Acts. This is part of the challenge of Acts. It's long, lots of scripture reading, and we'll do that today. But we'll do it in chunks. Jesus is the way. This is the decision. This is the first and foremost decision. Very important. This is the central message of the church. It is a central message that was in Jesus' day uh, of the early church, of the historical church. It is our central message today. We are saved by the work of God through Jesus Christ. It is grace. And what is grace? It is the work of God, not you. It is a gift. That means God did something for you on your behalf. This is grace. And I want us to take a moment here as we're just kind of going through the text and we're focusing on this. Um, Grace is so central to our life together as a church. You have to understand that. And it's so easy for us to read things and read about commands and things and, and automatically shift in our mindsets that, this is something that the spiritual life is something that you and I have to do. But it is an invitation to life with God. And a lot of messages that we give here on Sunday mornings So here, I'm peeling back the layer. This is, okay, here's some of my secret. Um, 
the way that we talk through messages is we often like to give parts of the message to each people in different categories. So you may be in here and you're new to the faith. You are really new to this message of the gospel, to this whole Jesus and Bible thing. And maybe you're the first in your family. Maybe nobody else in your family knows about Jesus. And if you're in that position, you are here in the right place. This is for you. And this message of grace in Jesus Christ is absolutely essential for you to understand. There's a response that God is looking for when he gives you a gift. It is to receive the gift, right? And to receive the gift, we do so by faith. We say yes. We say yes to Jesus. We say we may not understand all of it or every single part of it, but if we understand that this is a gift, that is the beginning point, the start point, that's how you become a Christian and you begin the journey. Now, a lot of folks have this conception um, when they're new to the faith that it's like, I don't, I don't understand enough. And yeah, there isn't an enough point, you know. But the enough point for most people is pretty early along in the journey. You don't need to understand a ton. Sometimes, like we see in Scripture, the gospel was given to someone and they responded very quickly. And our hope, my prayer for you, is that you will say yes to Jesus. Number two, another group that we like to address a lot on Sundays are people who are veterans of the faith. This is the phrase I like to use. It means you've been journeying with God for a long time. Maybe you've been uh, a Christian for years, maybe decades, and you've been walking with God for a long time. And you think, okay, what does the church message have for me? And I want to make sure that we understand the central message is still the same. It just applies differently. It is still about grace in Jesus Christ. Okay, so I have this phone, iPhone. Once in a while, I pull it out and, you know, use it. Uh, But one of the interesting things um, that I've discovered along the way with my kids, because they're like a lot smarter about mobile devices than I am, is that I don't realize how much this supercomputer can do that's in my pocket um, from different apps and how I can share things to um, a whole host of different things I just don't know how to do. And my, um, my older daughter, you know, it's, ah, come on, Dad, you know, uh, a little bit of frustration. It's like this thing is so amazing. So we're, the two of us were setting up this new Apple TV device at home the other day, and my inst- I need to go behind the, the TV to get the plugs right, and I can't see it because my head's too big. I can't fit back there. And so she just grabs my phone, does a selfie mode, and just sticks it behind, you know, just, just real smart, and just does it. And I'm like, that's really smart. Um, you know, it's just part of the way she lives. Um, and I'm like, yeah, of course, of course you do that. Um, and so... Uh, I, Okay, this is a sloppy illustration, but the point is this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is rich. It's deep. You will never plumb the depths of all there is to it. And as you walk forward in faith, what you begin to realize is that there is so much more in your life that doesn't match. 
And as that gracious love of God comes to repair, bring healing, redemption to those parts of your life that you forgot about or you didn't understand, oh, the journey is awesome. It is worth it. God will meet you in those places. That's what I want to say to you who are veterans of the faith. Things that we have here at Access, like faith walking, like our formation groups, even our educational offerings, the different things that we do are all parts of running deeper into those areas of grace. Now, let me say one more thing. For those of you who might be returning to faith, and here at Access, this is interesting because we just happen to have a lot of folks who are giving faith like a second or third or fourth try, and you've kind of run away from God over the years, and this is like another attempt to try and reconnect. My word to you is this. It is still about grace. A lot of times when we have these hard journeys that have taken us through twists and turns through valleys and really dark places, there's a fair amount of shame and guilt that kind of accumulate in our lives and it just makes everything way more complicated. And you need to work through those complications. But the good thing is this. God's in that too. And through his grace and through his love, there is a new day. Stick with it. Find Christ and his new life for you. He offers it. It's an invitation. It's a gift. So that's my little aside message for today for all of the different groups, but I think it's important because this is central to the life of the church. It's actually really, really important. Now, I said there's two things that the Jerusalem Council decided on. The first was the centrality of the gospel. The number, the number two thing they decided is this. When they finished, James, another apostle, uh, he spoke up. Hey, brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and build David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. Just a quick word on that. It was always the intention when God chose uh, his people long ago, the Israelites, to be a blessing to all people, that all Gentiles would also come to know God. Jesus shifted this to the life of the church. But here we go. It is my judgment, therefore, oh wait, um, just read that. I skipped the slide. I'm sorry, but um, anyways, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath day. So, okay, what is going on here? Because it sounds like James just contradicted all of Peter's argument. The center is the gospel. James says, whoa, don't forget about that food sacrifice to idols and the blood. What, what is he trying to do? Is he contradicting? He's laying all these new regulations onto the church? Um, 
And this leads us to our first point today, the challenge of unity. So what the early church recognizes is this. Yes, the center is the gospel, but there's this whole realm of life that we are meant to do together. How will the church live as one? And that's what James was talking about. He wasn't adding to the gospel, but he's saying, but we need to figure out how we do this practically. How will we live as one people when people eat different foods, they look different, they speak differently, and they have different sensibilities, and we're offending each other left and right, and it's just a mess. So he lays down these things, and let's walk through them quickly. Three things. Don't eat meat polluted by idols. What was this? So in the ancient times, people would often serve uh, an idol food, but obviously the idol didn't consume the food. So the food like found its way back into the system of, of things you could eat. Uh, maybe it was cheaper or whatever. Um, and... People would be eating this stuff, but it was offensive to people who worship God because they said, well, why would you do that? Because it's like worshiping, you know, a golden calf one day and then we're worshiping God the next day. You can't, you can't do that, right? So we're just going to lay off that type of food for now because it's just really confusing, especially for people who just come to faith. Number two, sexual immorality. Now, in the ancient Roman day, uh, sexual ethics were really different than they are. Um, within the kingdom of God. Uh, And so people slept around uh, with temple virgins. They went to prostitutes. Uh, Outside of marriage, they would have affairs. It wasn't unnatural for them. It wasn't like a strange thing. And so this was highly offensive to people who were committing their way to God and saying, you know, sex is reserved for marriage. It's a sacred thing that we see as part of the life of God. And when it is, in a sense, just not treated with the same respect, it's offensive. And so they said, well, we're going to practice sexual faithfulness. So that was number two. And finally, number three, the meat of strangled animals and blood. Now, this is probably the most obscure thing of all, but in the Old Testament, what happened? When... They had meat. Well, um, an animal was uh, bled first, and its blood would return to the earth. And when that happened, it was a, a way of respecting the animal and God as creator, because the blood was seen as the life force of that animal. You didn't consume it. You, you gave it back to the earth, and then the animal was, uh, the body of the animal was consumed. That's what God taught. Now, when an animal was strangled, that didn't happen. And this was offensive to the Jewish community as well because you weren't treating the creation properly in a sense. So there are strong echoes here about right relationship with God, right relationship with our creation. And so this was also part of James's stipulations. Now, these are three things, and maybe they're a bit obscure to you, and you're like, man, I'm having a hard time really attacking today because, man, the strangled animal thing, I just don't get it. So I just want to say that, yes, this was true for them back in the first day, but the unity challenge persists. It is our challenge today, right? This is, this is real life. I want to try and put some... <laughs> 
you know, normal language around it for today, just to help us bring it into our context. So when Amy and I got married, this is back in the mid-90s, um, we were one. We said yes to each other. We gave vows. We said to death that we was part, for better and worse, for sickness and health, all that good stuff. And we said yes. And the marriage was, you know, the marriage ceremony was an awesome day. I actually didn't get to eat much of that wedding cake, though. That's <laughs> um, because we were so busy, but that's beside the point. Um, then there was practical living. Then there was day two, you know, going home. And we couldn't agree about a lot of things, including how to prepare food. Now, you would think that I'd be pretty easy going about this stuff, but I would stand along in the kitchen with Amy, and we'd both be like doing like a dinner of fried rice, and we were arguing about when do you put the soy sauce into the fried rice? Do you do it mid-course, mid-heat, or do it afterwards? And I cannot believe the arguments that we had over this type of thing. You know, I was like, when I look, I look back at my 20-something-year-old self, I'm like, what were you thinking, you know? Uh, but we would just argue and argue and argue about this. Now, and there was, like, like weightier decisions around money and what to spend on, and I, I had a hard time spending on things. Um, we argued back and forth about the stupidest things, like who, who would fix things around the house. So one, one season... Our, our master bedroom, we live in an apartment on the fourth floor. Our toilet had issues. And by issues, I meant that the guy that was living below us, whenever he flushed his toilet, our toilet would flush too. I don't know, I don't know how this stuff works, okay? And I, I had some mechanical engineer background, but I was like, I'm baffled by this, you know? Um, but I didn't see it as my responsibility, but... Um, someone who grew up with a dad who was uber competent in all things thought it was my responsibility and we had the greatest argument over like who was supposed to fix this thing um, so anyways I, I had to call the, the, the manager and I didn't know what to do uh, so anyhow the point is this anytime people live together there is potential for conflict Everybody, even the people you've pledged to love. It's just the way we are as humans. We don't all speak, act, and believe in the same things. And it is not our purpose in life to make our loved ones conform to our image. They are, in the kingdom of God, we are lifting them up to conform to the image of Christ. Now, that's another message for another time, but um, this is the challenge. Now, the first century challenge was huge. We have a different challenge, and I'm going to jump into some risky stuff today, and I hope we can receive this well, but this is something that is part of our series, and I really want to talk about our challenge today is that we live in what we call a racialized society. A racialized society. Michael Emerson and Christian Smith wrote a book called Divided by Faith many years ago. It's, 
if you heard of Michael Emerson, he was a professor at Rice University who's just a brilliant sociologist. He also serves in our denomination. He works at North Park University and is, you know, if you want to dive more deeply into this subject that we're tackling, um, look up his works. They define a racialized society as this, a society that allocates differential economic, political, social, and even psychological rewards to groups along racial lines, lines that are socially constructed. We are never unaware of the race of the person with whom we interact. It's front and center. Even if we don't name it, it's what we think about. It's how we categorize people. It's how we interact. And sometimes this is very uncomfortable. This is what we mean by a racialized society, and it is the history of this racialized world that we live in that is causing everything to be divided along those lines. As a church that unites diverse people, we need to pay attention to this division. Now, here we jump into something even more uncomfortable for some of us. We live in a racialized society that has lifted up whiteness and has kept down people of color. Now, when I say this, I want to say a couple of things first of all. Some of you may be uncomfortable hearing that because I'm just stating something that's pretty blunt, that's very obvious to, to many of us, but we don't always name it, right? And if you are uh, someone here and you identify with, uh, as a white person, I want to say this very clearly. I think it's very, very encouraging as a person of color to be in fellowship with you. We as Axis have a history. We came out of a Chinese church setting. We created something that's more multi-ethnic, multicultural. And the majority culture here is East Asian, right? And so when someone who comes in and enters in and is a mission partner who is part of the majority culture in the rest of the world and willingly is part of what we are creating here at Axis, it speaks volumes to me. I don't always articulate that. I haven't always articulated, but I'm learning to. And I just want to say thanks because it means a lot to me. It, it's very helpful. Um, I, could, I could say more, but, but I want to get to the meat of what I'm saying here today, um, even though it's uncomfortable, right? We need to consider our history. These are some really uncomfortable things that have happened in the life of this United States, we have a United States that was based economically on a race-based slavery. That was the reality for generations. That's how this United States was built up. In 1787, there was something called the Three-Fifth Compromise, so that when censuses were taken, a black body was counted only as three-fifths of a person why was this done? There's a lot of political stuff around this, so it's a little bit more complicated, but just think about what that does to you psychologically as a person, three-fifths of a human being. In 1857, there was the Dred Scott case. So I'm taking you back into U.S. history, right? So maybe some of you remember this from high school, maybe not. Uh, but when I was reading some things months ago, I actually read some of the, about the Dred Scott case, I don't remember reading this in high school, but this was a little bit illuminating. 
This was handed down by Chief Justice Roger Taney as he wrote the, the um, now let me give you the, the whole scenario here. Dred Scott was a slave and his masters took him to a free area of the United States and when they were in this free area, he began to think, well, maybe I should sue for my freedom. Maybe I can become free. And so he brought the case to the United States government and he lost. But this is the decision that the Chief Justice wrote. We think that black people are not included. And we were not intended to be included under the word citizen in the Constitution and can therefore claim none of the rights and privileges which that instrument provides for and secures to citizens of the United States. On the contrary, they were at that time of America's founding considered as a subordinate and inferior class of beings who had been subjugated by the dominant race and whether emancipated or not, yet remained subject to their authority and had no rights or privileges, but such as those... Man, I'm having a hard time. But, yeah, you get that. Um, some of us may say, well, that was then, this is now. How is it different? Aren't we different these days? Yeah, we are much different. And that kind of language never finds its way into a court decision. Thank God. Um, but we still live with this reality. And to think that that was just another era and we've just moved on from it is really kind of foolish thinking. Um, consider this term, um, this term ethnic people, right? So if you type it in, this is like the kind of pictures you'll get and this is the kind of language that we use. Uh, now, in a formal sense, an ethnic person, uh, to, to say something about someone as ethnic just simply means that you have a history with other people that have a story, who have a, a culture, a set of languages and values, and that means you're an ethnic person. And everybody is really an ethnic person. But what the word tends to mean these days is that you're a person of color and your story originates from outside these United States. You have an outside origin, whereas if you are white, your origin is from here. So a lot of people who are identified as white just don't say that they have an ethnic origin. No, that's, that's them. I'm white. Consider how that's used. And now let me give you something that I think is a little bit lighter. <laughs> So Michael Emerson, um, like I said, was a professor at Rice University. And he used to give this project to people. And the project um, for his students was for 24 hours, I want you to put the term white in front of everyone you refer to who is white. So you would say stuff like this. My white professor gave me this assignment, right? Or my white neighbor gave me the mail. You know, this is type of, uh, of way of speaking. Now, just think about that for a sec, okay? Consider your life and consider you trying to do that. What would that be like? How would that make you feel? Would that work in your context? So this is what Emerson writes about because when his students did it, um, he writes about the result. 
Their papers followed a fairly clear racial pattern. The students of color either say they did not find it that unusual to do this, as they typically do so, referring to people by their racial group, right? My, my, my professor, my Asian professor. Or they would say that they find it funny. And some, too, do the people uh, of color that they talk to. But they also find it difficult to refer to someone as white to a white person, fearing retribution or expressions of shock. My white students typically found this assignment a most difficult, often excruciating experience. They tell me they never refer to people by their race. So to be asked to do this so feels not only unnatural, but also wrong, perhaps even racist. Some tell me that they could not do the assignment at all. I tell them in the assignment that they, can, they do not have to do the assignment. But in such a case, they should write about it. Uh, why they did not wish to do it. Many do not finish the 24 hours as they are simply too uncomfortable. Of those who attempt the assignment, they often report feeling dread, great nervousness, having sweaty palms, or racing hearts as they began. They report absolute shock from their white friends or family when they refer to someone as white. Sometimes they get lectures, reactions of horror, or reactions of, what's wrong with you? Or also common is to get reactions like, what do you mean you're a white professor? What color are your other professors? So this was the social experiment. I just, it's food for thought to think about because white is the dominant culture. It is the norm. And all of a sudden, when you start calling out the norm all the time, it's like, why would you say something different? You know, you don't need to call out the norm. All right, so... This is the point. Why am I bringing all this up? There's a lot of stuff to cover today. We live in a racialized nation. If we want to be a church that unites diverse people, we need to know our context and how to speak and embody good news to those who have been so deeply divided. This is the point of me talking about this. So my third point today is striving for unity. How do we strive for unity in this? So the Evangelical Covenant Church, which is our denomination, came up with something called the Six-Fold Test. And I really like this because this is almost like a parallel. There was a Jerusalem Council back in the day. They came up with their three. The uh, denomination came together years ago, and they came up with six. And this is their six-fold test for how to engage in better multi-ethnic relationships and as a denomination. Some of you are familiar with this, but I just want to read a f- or tell you what. We're going to skip this for the sake of time, but let me just say this. Um, They are recognizing that the world is fractured, and these are ways forward. I'm going to share these very quickly. Six things, and you can download this later. You can either take a picture now, but you can also, there's a link I'll, I'll share. Population. Are we reaching more people from increasing populations? Participation. Are we finding ways to engage in life together with people from different cultures, different ethnicities, different races? Power. Are positions and structures of influence by perspective and gifts of diverse people? So the denomination looks like this. Are the people in the right place, in the right boards, in the right leadership places? Um, Pace setting. What new things does diversity allow us to initiate? How do we live into that strength of ours? Purposeful narrative. How are our stories being told together, not leaving people out? And finally, practicing solidarity. How are we standing with and advocating for others? 
So we're going to have this discussion later on. I'm just giving this to you because this will be part of our way forward. And this is something that we can hold on to. Now, I want to say that this is a good grid for us to look at with our church too. And I'll just be really honest. No, we don't measure up. No, we don't do all these things. But as a church that unites diverse people, we are committed to saying, yes, let's do this. And let's do this well. Let's live into this. Now, I took a little bit longer today. I was going to read the rest of Acts 15. There is a letter that is written about the decisions, both decisions one and two, the gospel of the center. There are these three things we want you to pay attention to. But I just want to point out the end. You can read it later on your own. Here are the things. Verse 28 and verse 31 are things that are to pay attention to. In the letter, they make this phrase. It seemed good to us at the time, to the Holy Spirit and to us. I really like that phrase. It stood out to many believers over time because one of the things is that we often think, you know, there are rules and there's spirit. You know, if you live by the spirit, never mind the rules, or if you're a really rules-based person, you have a hard time with spirit-type thinking. And I want to say that the Holy Spirit moved this council to create some rules. Huh. So take that for food for thought, right? So this was both and but it seemed as they moved into this. And the other thing is this. You and I are not going to become a church that unites diverse people by, your, by our own strength and by our own wit. It is by the movement of the Holy Spirit. And the, the last thing I want to point out is the people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. There was a sense of joy in all of this. So as we wrap up today, I know I ran long. You know, I got a little angry. Um, so um, as we're reading and, and, and processing this stuff, I am putting up some questions on the board. I'd like you just kind of to sit on your own. We're going to take a minute of silence and just digest these things. Maybe there's a question that you want to sit with and just meditate on. Um, this isn't meant for you to do in like two minutes, obviously. Just pick one. But the conversation is meant for the rest of the week, for our lives together as we live into this vision. So I'll give you about a minute to just sit with these questions, and then I'll close this in prayer. <laughs>